Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street, and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. We will all see news of what's happening in the Near East. It's a clearly human tragedy, and some of the visual images are very disturbing and frightening. And it also clearly adds to geopolitical uncertainty. Clearly, right now in the region, there are a number of possible paths that the actors might follow, and clearly that might expand outwards to include other actors uh, nearby or outside the region. And so Sitting here right now, you can see the human dimension uh, without us being clear or having a lot of information about what the future geopolitical paths are going to be. Uh, and I think our job is always to try to locate these geopolitical uncertainties in their impact on markets and economies. And I think sitting here right now, uh, it's more uh, uncertainty. There's more noise, actually, we feel right now than signal. And as we all know, geopolitical Activity and uncertainty does play into markets, I guess, with the Near East in mind. we Well, maybe we don't all remember. I do. Uh, but many of us won't necessarily remember the impact of the uh, Yom Kippur War and the uh, uh, Arab oil embargo and the consequence for Western economies. Although, you know, arguably that was a push on a rock that was already precipitously placed at the at the top of the hill. Uh, but these geopolitical events do have uh, effects on markets. As I said, I think we don't have enough information at the moment. So what I'd like to do is to bring us back to uh, something that has been very much in the news at the moment, very much in the economics and markets news, which is what's going on in the bond markets, in the markets for long-term government fixed income particularly. So Robert, turning to you, um, so what's happening? What's happening in bond markets right now? Uh, well, the moves in the bond market really have been um, pretty extreme. So I think it, putting it in his, historic context, it is it is quite an important uh, movement and it is really at the heart of what we think is going to happen in the markets in the coming uh, sort of year ahead. I think as we look back, um, obviously the last 10 years, interest rates at basically zero for a sustained period of time is unusual. Now, it wasn't unprecedented. There were similar movements uh, in the US and, and other countries around the, the 1930s depression uh, period. So it was an extreme of monetary policy. It's what happens when you get to that disinflation, um, deflationary threat. But it is unusual. And what we've seen really is interest rates in the last, since the bout back of, of COVID forced interest rates back to zero, uh, we've seen one of the fastest increases in rates for a sustained period of time. So it, it is a it is a significant move. Now, I suppose it depends on your lens of history as to whether you think rates are high now. So clearly they're high compared to the last 10 years. So a lot of a lot of market participants and business models are not used to having a, 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 an interest rate. 
And that is going to be a shock to the system. It's a shock to the system when we've got this much debt. But then it does depend on the context. So last 10 years, it looked extremely high and it's been a quick move back up. If we look on the last 30 or 40 years, maybe you would say interest rates, even around 5%, are still below average. But I think that belies another sort of um, difference and unusual period, really, is, is what we saw after the Second World War is interest rates go up a long way and then down a long way. We've seen these two big secular trends uh, as inflation got out of, out of control in the world of fiat currencies, and then we've controlled inflation the last 40 years. So even that average, I think, is somewhat um, distorted. So to simply say, well, if we look further back than our recent 10, 20-year history, last 50 years, we're, we're at sort of below average rates, I think is, again, it's somewhat misleading. And you see a lot of these graphs going back hundreds of years. Certainly the Bank of England produced data going back to the 17th century. But in the long scheme of, of interest rates, really short-term interest rates have been somewhere between 2 and 6%. Long-term rates slightly less volatile over time. But even against that long term of history, we're certainly on the top end of the range. So um, I think the, the, the speed of increase in rates is important given the amount of debt we've got in the world. But also the absolute level of rates is, is relatively high when we take a, a longer scheme of history. So it is a significant move um, and it does have real impacts on, on the global economy. And that was really the, the, the threat at the start of the year was if the economy really was tipping into recession already, there was the danger to equities. But the other danger was actually economic data being better than expected, inflation a bit more sticky, and rates staying higher for longer. And that's really what the last couple of months has been about, is, is pricing in actually uh, rates higher for longer. And that's had a negative impact for equity markets because equity markets were not pricing in rates uh, staying higher. They were pricing in sort of this rapid um, cutting in rates. And it, it is a significant move up. It's quite rapid. It's all been really real rates in the last few months. It's not been a story about inflation. And that does have knock-on impacts with a lag for, for the real economy. So not only is it repricing risk, repricing equities potentially, but it's also increasing the probability of, of recession to come. So that's the very much the what. So uh, interest rates have gone up. Uh, they've gone up to, as you're saying, you know, relatively uh, uh, high-ish levels compared to the long run of history. And that's um, been about real rates going up, certainly more recently. Uh, so so that's the, 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 the what. Can you sort of extract from that the, and maybe this is always a tough question in markets, that the sort of why is this happening? I mean, a lot of time in markets, things happen and, and you sort of backward interpret the, the why, not always with, with, with great confidence. But what's your sense of why this is happening now. Yeah, um, so, so I think that the central narrative, if we're looking at how um, sort of investors have been thinking about this, is really that, that, that transition from worries about recession at the start of the year to focusing on actually it's soft landing, we're, we're in a good place, to realisation soft landing means higher for longer. So the central reason, the central narrative is um, markets reacting to higher for longer, and we're seeing that repricing the interest rate curve, um, and that's that's at the heart of of what's going on. So, why are they thinking higher for longer? It's because economic growth in the U.S. has continued to be 
better than um, expected. Now, I think under the surface, maybe we can dig into there's some reasons to think actually they're slowing there and and the data is maybe not quite as, as good as expected. But that certainly um, has been uh, part of the uh, part of the issue. So growth being better. I think the other issue potentially is inflation's a bit stickier maybe than we'd thought. So there's been this disinflationary period as expected. But actually, uh, the last couple of months as well, headline data now, the, 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 the sort of base effect isn't as easy in the US. So we're seeing inflation a bit stickier than, than expected. Certainly wage inflation has remained a bit stickier. And we're also seeing it with the with a potential lag as well. So the energy prices, which had, had dropped a lot in the last year, actually have, have gone up. <laughs> uh, absence of volatility in both directions in the last few days, but really higher energy prices. If we stay where we are in gas prices towards the end of the year, that alone is going to add to to inflationary pressures. So, so yes, growth better, potentially inflation in the medium term higher. And I think the one thing we did identify, which is starting to play out now is, yes, headline inflation has been coming down, but actually that medium term five year, five year inflation continues to tick up a little bit. So the market is starting, the realisation is actually medium term inflation may be a bit stickier than is expected. So that that's one other um, rationale. So I think we link that a bit to, to, to energy prices potentially. Um, and I think the last last couple of uh, reasons really link to actually um, on the supply side. So the US in particular, if we're thinking about them as the, the center of, uh, of driving interest rates, uh, the size of the deficit is huge. It is very large by historic perspective. So there is a lot of debt out there. And that supply, who's going to be the buyer? Well, the buyer isn't going to be the treasury as much as it has been. So we see we are seeing some QT. And we're also seeing a lack of foreign buyers as well. So if we're thinking about Chinese um, and Japanese buyers of treasuries and Saudi Arabia even uh, are buying less treasuries than they used to. So supply's gone up and there's less demand from, from investors. Again, that's going to be another source of pressure for, for higher interest rates. Um, and if we look further afield as well, it is it is all linked. It's actually Japanese policy where Japan has been really um, controlling, yield, doing yield curve control. They're starting to let their rates uh, increase as they're feeling the pressure from, from weakening yen. And they've had to intervene in the currency and debt markets uh, recently. That, again, is a knock-on impact to the rest of the world. Letting Japanese rates go up increases the volatility. So I think there are a number of these different reasons around the central reason of really the market narrative shifting to, to, to higher for longer. And uh, so real rates have gone up, as you noted, and that's uh, you know possibly a reflection of the fact that there are uh, that, that the marginal price demanded by uh, a future owner of US uh, government debt is a more demanding uh, owner than perhaps have been the case in the past. So the disappearance perhaps or the reduction of central bank buyers, whether those central bank buyers are, uh, are the Fed or, or other central banks. Does, uh, is this then a buying opportunity? Is this the moment to, to then say, well, look, you know, prices have moved to a point where, you know, bonds do look attractive and now's the moment to go and buy some? So the way I'd, I'd break it out, I think, is, is sort of thinking short term, long term. So in the short term, one could say, if you think about the rationale um, you're thinking about short-term momentum and um, sort of market activity on a technical basis. The market does look oversold. So there's been a lot of um, 
a lot of sellers, the market suddenly gone, uh, you know, gone down a long way for, for treasuries in a short period of time. So maybe there'll be a bounce. That's a very weak reason for buying, but that is that is there. I think the next strongest reason, really, the, the heart of thinking of it as a cyclical trade is if you do think recession is coming, recession risk, there is reason then in that environment for rates to be cut. So that's the best reason for buying treasuries and, and duration in this environment. Um, rather than thinking about the credit risk aspect, if you think about just the duration risk, um, if, if recession risk is on its way, rates are likely to fall in that environment, even if there's stickier inflation. So I think that's the strongest and best reason. And rates are certainly at a, a decent level. So in a normal environment, if we don't have extremely high inflation, um, you are setting in for a positive real return in that, that type of environment as you roll down um, the yield curve. So there are, there are certainly reasons um, to buy bonds, strongest being about the recession. But I think we face two big changes. The change number one is we are in a secularly different environment to the last 30 years. So 30 years, you had rates and inflation coming down. It's an easy trade. You, you were long bonds the whole time. Yes, there are periods where bonds sold off, but actually there is a general trend down. We're not going to have that from where we start at the moment. We're more likely to enter into one of two regimes is either the period of the last 200 years where you, you vacillate up and down and you go long bonds in periods of recession, but rates get rates go up in um, in sort of normal periods um, and you end up with a sort of zero to one percent real return. That's one possible environment, which, again, is is boring, but it, it's better than um, it, it could have been in the past. But the danger environment is if, if inflation it does surprise to the high side, that is really where you get hurt as a, as a bondholder. So I think what we've seen when we look at the last two years or so, because we started at such low interest rates, there's been this dramatic mark-to-market nominal effect, which you don't often see. And that's why this is the worst drawdown for the global ag, US ag, since the ag was invented or, or started in the late 70s. But even going back in US bonds, it's the worst drawdown of US bonds for over 200 years because we started at such um, very low rates. So the 30-year bond is off over 50%. So it's a, it's a drawdown as much as the US equities had in the dot-com period of that sort of order. Um, if you're looking at the Austrian bond that we looked at, the 100-year bond, it's off more than 75%. So that's that's an extreme move that we don't often um, see. But I think the damage for the long-term investor is less that and more Actually, you have sustained periods where rates are lower than inflation, and that's where you get hurt in real terms. And that's the pernicious effect you don't see in the headline, but actually that's more damaging for a long-term investor. And that's what we had for bond markets when rates persistently um, were going up and inflation was going up after the Second World, uh, Second World War II around 1980. You had persistent negative returns for bonds for three decades, and that it remains a risk. So one of those two environments, you either get... Bonds really are, are more a recession asset, something you want just for a short period of time rather than something you can lock away for a large piece of your portfolio. And I think a lot of investors are not have not reassessed their portfolios in light of that potential um, sort of outcome for fixed income investing. You touched on higher for longer because US economic growth particularly has turned out to be more robust than, uh, than we were anticipating and inflation perhaps a bit stickier. Uh, and I guess before that became the prevailing view, the hope was that there could be a soft landing. That is to say, the Fed would 
raise rates, uh, economic activity would come off a little bit without there being huge increases in unemployment and the US economy would effortlessly uh, uh, land and be ready then to take off again without there being a lot of upset. Whereas now, because growth is stronger, because inflation is stickier, the narrative is higher for longer. That is to say, interest rates are going to go to a higher level and stay at that level than uh, that longer than, than people had thought. And therefore, the risk of a harder landing and US recession is more talked about. That sort of curious paradox where the better the news now, uh, the more uh, gloomy is the news or the prospect of news in the future. So, so we've seen that story turn a little bit. What's your take on that, Robert? How do you, where are you sitting on the soft landing, hard landing, um, or la- crash on landing, whatever the <laughs> various analogies that were, were going around? Yeah, so I think um, we, we've been more bearish in the sense of expecting a higher probability of recession, I think, than, than the market for a period of time. I think the soft landing is very hard to to take place. And it did require, the few times it's happened in history, you have needed some extra um, good news. And one of the extra pieces was actually, yes, you can increase rates, but the central bank has to turn on a dime and start cutting rates. And that's what was priced into the market. And that's what's really needed for a soft landing. Suddenly, as soon as the news gets bad, you're ready to cut rates. And I think we're already through that period, potentially, is... Um, the, the, the Federal Reserve is unlikely to cut rates immediately. And the longer it holds here, actually, the danger is you're going to over-tighten and um, you increase that probability of a, of a harder landing. And I think we're into that that territory now. Things do act with a lag. Uh, so that remains um, sort of a key risk. So I think the chance of a soft landing has gone down. I mean, it doesn't have to be a very nasty recession. There are a lot of avenues now that... Um, given the US consumer going into this, is in, it does have a better balance sheet than in the past. Um, there is the potential for a, um, a more mild, if protracted, recession, but recession nonetheless, and also something that's not really priced into equities, which is why we've seen equities sell off in the last um, month or so. So I think definitely um, that probability of recession remains elevated. For us, it's gone down in our eyes, but it still remains elevated. Um, so it's still likely to have a recession over the over the next 12 months. There are enough pieces of data which do look like growth is slowing. Um, and even when we look at the strength of the labour market, I think it's just so hard. The data is so distorted. Not only is the quality of data pretty low, there are lower respondents, but we're seeing that difference between GDP and GDI we highlighted before with GDI already contracting. When we're looking at um, even the job market, which still looks pretty robust, the, the, there's a difference between the establishment and the household surveys. And potentially some of that is caused by actually more workers working more than one job, which is somewhat distorting some of the um, some of the data we're coming through. So, um, yes, the market, the labor market looks pretty robust, but under the surface, there are signs that maybe uh, we're, we're starting to weaken. So the, the, the chance of slowdown, given this increase in rates, is pretty high. And I think that we should just highlight that as well. When you have these sharp increases in real rates in the past, um, they've typically led to some form of financial issue in the end, because there are some investors, some some institutions somewhere who've who've taken too much risk and are vulnerable to that rising um, rising real interest rate. So in the past, we have seen these market cracks, and potentially that's 
that's what we've got in in front of us is really the Fed won't cut rates until inflation is controlled, which might be too late, or until we actually see some financial issues um, emerging in the market. So I think that, that that's the risk, which I still think remains higher than is, is priced in. And even when we look at the equity markets, I think we should say, um, not only is the headline coming down, and by the end of this month, we may see um, sort of equity returns for the, the MSCI or country world lower than for certain hedge fund strategies and market neutral strategies. But um, if we look at the equal weighted um, MSCI or equal weighted S&P, we're already basically on the verge, if not negative for those indices. So negative returns. So most of the stocks there, the, me- the median um, stock is down for the year. So um, despite some of the good news, Really, it was a distortion and a small number of stocks which were holding up the market to date. And the underlying um, sort of equity performance is is more correlating to um, a slowdown um, in in growth and earnings. And how, Robert, do we manage for that in in our portfolio construction? So what have we talked about? We've talked about uh, real rates going up with bonds, we've talked about equities, um, certainly for the last, uh, what, six to eight weeks or so, having had a slightly tougher time as they digested this this higher for longer possibility and the chance, therefore, of a slightly nasty and expected recession coming along. What, what's, the, what's the right portfolio construction for these circumstances? Well, I think the, f- the first thing, to have, to have done is you you do need to uh, when when the future is uncertain and risks are relatively elevated and we are at the tail end of an economic um, cycle now's not the time to be taking lots of risks so it is a time to diversify and protect your portfolios accordingly for your risk tolerance um, which I think is the first first thing to do don't chase um, direct return by just buying the market. I think within that, uh, it was thinking about how to diversify more broadly, thinking about how to protect an environment where bonds won't necessarily protect you. And we saw that in September. September is actually another month where basically most assets went down at the same time. Long bonds were down even more than equities in the month. So you were down sort of three, four, five percent for different bond and equity indices in the month. Um, so what you did need is to diversify into other assets, be it cash, um, some hedge fund strategies like macro futures trading, having hedges in your portfolio, and other ways that you can dampen the risk level uh, while protecting, um, you know, without taking just interest rate or bond risk. That, was, that wasn't the protection so far um, in this environment. So that is what we're um, focusing on our portfolios, that broader level of diversification, building a truly... Um, a portfolio which has the, you know, protects in this environment, you do need to be more dynamic and diversify more widely. Um, and we've seen that really the last three years, that's been the story. The low risk portfolios of actually traditional low risk portfolios with tons of bonds have done relatively badly in that, that period of time. And potentially that's more of the environment for the future. Now, it's far better to be buying bonds now than it was three years ago or two years ago. But still, it remains, you want to diversify more, more broadly. And I think it's also if you are looking for return, it's pick your spots. So the relative value decisions now are more important than the um, the absolute buying the market. 
It's actually choosing active managers, choosing the spots in the market where you can sort of find attractive assets. So, for example, Japan was one area we've talked about a lot this year. That's one of the areas in which to hide in, in equity markets or value equities against growth. Um, is another of the the um, the ideas we've talked about. But having a number of these um, uncorrelated but attractive relative value um, ideas does help um, a portfolio in this this environment. Um, but equally, I should say on bonds, um, as, as often with with sort of investing when value improves, we added a li- we had no bonds through the the course of. Um, 2022 we did add some bonds as protection at the start of the year a small allocation not our full full weight uh, about five percent um and that's underperformed so far this year now we're looking to add to it when the market turns but uh, and and sort of increase the level of bonds but that's an example where the market dropped 20 percent or so last year it's dropped again another 20 30 percent this year because bonds um have really had quite a severe bear market. So I think with any of these these attitudes, having a diversified portfolio does mean some of your assets will do worse than others, but you want to make sure you've got enough assets that can actually perform well and mean that in a market like the last quarter, um, our portfolios weathered that much better, having a sort of flat period while equities and bonds were, were suffering. And I think that's that's the way we approach this so that you've got the capacity, you don't have the big drawdown and you're able to really reinvest when assets become more appealing and more attractive, which I think that's the positive spin on sort of the negative environment we're talking about is actually having a negative economic environment and cheaper valuations is a great time for the long-term investor to be investing. So I think the future um, ability to invest at attractive prices and and find, and find sort of locking in good long-term returns is much better. Even in bond markets, I would say, you can get a 2.5% real yield in, in inflation-linked bonds. So if that's your target, you can almost lock that away with inflation-linked bonds today. Um, so the, the future for investors is much better, uh, the worse the, the environment um, sort of becomes in the short term. I wanted to, uh, I, I think we've probably talked about this before, but I wanted to pick up, I think, a, a point you're making there about diversification and defensiveness. And I think... Uh, what we're saying is clearly when when markets are having a tough time, uh, you want to own defensive assets uh, because those are the ones that are going to preserve capital when uh, other assets are not preserving capital. And as you say, put, your, put you in a position uh, to be able to redeploy that capital into uh, more attractively priced growth assets, which have come down in value. But I think the point you're, you're, you're making there, Robin, and this is quite a profound one, is that uh, defensive assets are more easily seen ex post than they are seen ex ante. And actually, as, a, as an investor, what you can control ex ante is to be diversified and to own a variety of different things that will perform in different environments such that ex post, there will be and, and in the event that that intervening period was one where uh, valuations come down, you can at that ex post moment look back and see, oh, well, I've owned this defensive asset class, even though uh, ex ante you didn't know that was going to be the defensive asset class because you didn't know what the the economic conditions were going to be. And I think that is a, uh, I think that's quite a profound point and something we, we talk a, a lot about. Uh, with clients, which is it's 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 uh, it's easy to look back 
and uh, think about what you would like to have owned given what happened. It's much, much harder not knowing uh, what will happen to make those choices and therefore diversification is can be your friend. But I suppose that led me to a question rather than just a reflection, which is, is diversification always the 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 answer, Robert? I mean, I suppose we have relatively diversified portfolios right now, although as you described, there are strong views held within. So we would have said at the beginning of 2022, for example, that we held uh, a diversified portfolio and yet there were no bonds in it. Uh, so I was going to guess, I was going to ask you to reflect, Robert, on you know, whether diversification ebbs and flows according to circumstance uh, and and when you're thinking about portfolio construction and matching it to sort of economic conditions and valuations, whether you think diversification is a is, is a dial that you turn. Yeah. So I think on, on that point about assets, it's harder to know in advance. I think that's why you need a more broadly diversified portfolio than, than people are used to. So just having bonds and equities works in a disinflationary world doesn't work in an inflationary world. The risk-free asset in an inflationary world is more like real assets or commodities. So investors that invested in the 70s, uh, a fixed income heavy portfolio was a really bad news. So I think most portfolios are a bit too skewed to the last 30 years. So there are a broader range of outcomes. So I think that is that's certainly true. Having said that, part of the investing job, it is harder in advance, but actually is to determine what type of environment you might have and try and skew in that direction. And that's what we're trying to do in the sense of, you know, if it's more deflationary than inflationary, you have more deflationary assets to protect and uh, or, or more inflationary assets. So if, if, if you think it's a more inflationary environment. So skewing according to the, the type of, of future, that even if it's probability weighted, I think is really important. So that is certainly something to do. So in, in this environment, you need more inflation protection than you have done for, for a number of decades, uh, which is why our portfolios have more of that type of protection um, in, in place. So that that is definitely in, important. And that idea, you know, defensive assets today are not the same as tomorrow. The last month in September, energy assets were up, as an example, in an inflationary world, that became a bit more your risk-free asset moving in a different direction um, to others. So I think that is that is quite important. But in terms of diversification itself, diversification is the answer when you have a lack of knowledge or the risks and uncertainty is particularly high. And risk levels and uncertainty does move up and down over time. So there are periods where you want more diversification and periods where you want less. Um, and certainly the case of when the risk of recession rises and valuations get more expensive, that's when we increase our defensive and diversifying assets. So we have relatively more at this period of time compared to when we were sitting here 10 years ago or, or, or longer, when markets are cheaper, we'll have less diver, um, diversifying assets and you have more of the equity and assets which do well in a period of economic growth. And so it certainly does move up and down. And even within different areas, I think if you choose the right assets, you don't need lots of assets to diversify widely. Choosing the right assets, some that do well in each of those environments weighting them accordingly, actually, you can get diversification with fewer assets and not more. And there are certain areas where you've got an active manager with a with an edge, you want them to have a concentrated portfolio, because your portfolios elsewhere, um, are more um, diversified and robust. And that's at, at the heart of it, what you want is not just number of line items, but portfolios that are truly robust against a range of outcomes. And that's where I feel we're confident 
in in what we're doing and and you know months like september um show that and periods like um 2022 is when a lot of things are going down if you diversify properly you'll have some that are going up and actually your portfolios would do well in that type of environment and be ready to um to, to reinvest and i think that's the true test of um sort of diversification is when the going is is getting difficult can you really um protect capital and be ready to pounce on the investments as uh, the opportunities as they appear robert as always thank you very much and thank you for joining us You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners, LLP, is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss, is expressly disclaimed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied, reproduced, further distributed to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com.